0: We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, we seek blessings on the Prophet, may peace be upon him. Uh, Before we jump into the text, anyone have any questions about anything at all? Questions, blank tears, just like undergrads. Okay, cool. Uh, Let's see, who would like to read for us? Uh, Usaid, do you want to read? At the bottom where it says the sources of Islamic law.
1: Sure. Yeah. Below the
0: sources of Islamic law, right? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. So, okay. the sources of Islamic law, and then start up here at the top left.
1: Cool. It is important to distinguish the formal sources of law in the Islamic legal tradition from what is often called the practical sources of law. Formal sources of law are an ideological construct, they are the ultimate foundations invoked by jurists and judges as the basis of legal legitimacy and authority. The practical sources, however, are the actual premises
0: and processes utilized in legal practice in the process of protecting positive rules and commandments. Okay, anybody want to translate uh, what Khalid Abul Fadal is saying here? Sure. Um, I guess basically what he's trying to say is
1: that the actual formal laws, which, um, you know, those are what are used as like the, I guess, best thing to the word uh that's the basis of how rulings are made by judges and uh, jurists Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and so so he is making a bold point here which i agree with that it's an ideological construct and he's going to name the the common sources of islamic law and he's saying how does law really get derived it's when an issue comes up and then the the jurist is figuring out a way to find an answer for the issue. And so that which we call the Hanafi school of law, an issue comes up and then they find an answer. And then in terms of the pattern that they're following from there, they're deriving a method. Maliki school is the same thing. The issue comes and then they derive an answer for it. And then someone else comes along and notices patterns and the methods that's being used for, for interpretation. Well, school they did it internally because they also addressed the hypothetical issues. The Maliki school, um, they didn't address hypothetical issues at least early on. <clears throat> and then the Shafi'i school comes along later. It's sort of an offshoot of the Malikis. And they, they basically start by saying, okay, these are the formal sources, which we're about to see in a second. And then in theory, laws being constructed to them, but as, as, uh, is gonna say, no, that's not really how it plays out. All right, uh, continue.
1: In theory, the foundations of all law in Islamic jurisprudence are the following. The Quran, the Sunnah, which is a tradition of the Prophet Muhammad and his companion, uh, Qiyas, which is analogical or deductive reasoning, and Ijma, consensus or the overall agreement of the Muslim jurists.
0: Okay, so, so this point, uh, memorize somewhere in your head, this is the common answer for the four sources, right? and essentially what are they it number the first two are the primary sources so the primary sources being the quran and the sunnah and then the other two are are two techniques to to interpret those sources one is analogies okay. meaning here we have uh in the quran you can't drink uh you can't drink grape wine right so it's not that you can't drink alcohol in the quran you can't drink wine made from grapes that's um But then why? Because it's an intoxicant, therefore intoxicants are prohibited. That's an analogy. And then because we don't have a central authority, we're relying upon disagreement and debate to figure out what our answers are. And then when people are beginning to agree on something, that's ijma. And so the key word is overall agreement. It's never unanimous. There's always gonna be someone who's an outlier. And, and so matters of consensus are actually very, very small, but the schools of law, they're actually getting into the issues where there's much more disagreement as we'll see. All right, uh, thank you for that. Uh, continue, uh, uh, we'll see it. In contrast to mainstream Sunni Islam, Shia jurisprudence, as
1: well as the minority, as well as a minority of Sunni jurists in the particular classical orientation recognized reason instead of bias, as a foundational source of law. These four are legitimating sources, but the practical sources of law include an array of conceptual tools that greatly
0: expand the venues of the legal determination. Okay, so he's gonna start just rattling them off. Um, As a long-term practice, try to get to know these. Uh, He's gonna list them out really quickly. And one thought I'm having, depending upon where you all wanna go in terms of studying all this material, is that either after going through this whole section on Islamic law, we might go to the latter part of the text, which is what he's really focusing on Islamic law today. Or we can go into uh, a basic text of Islamic law where we get into these tools. So what are we about to see? We're gonna see essentially legal tools uh, that are part of the process of interpretation. And so these are instruments that have been developed to help derive answers. And it'll make more sense as we as we actually go through this. So, uh, fire away.
1: For instance, practical sources include presumptions of continuity, and the imperative of following precedents, legal rationalizations for breaking with precedent and de novo determinations, H-Dihad, application of summary practices, or judgments in equity, equitable relief, and necessity, etc. in some cases, the pursuit or the protection of public interests uh, or public policies, and Saad al yeah, <laughs> these, are,
0: to,
1: yeah. uh, these are other, these and other practical jurisprudential sources were not employed as legal tropes in a lawless application of so called quality justice. In fact, sophisticated conceptual frameworks were developed to regulate the application of the various jurisprudential tools that employed in the process of legal determination. Not only were those conceptual frameworks intended to distinguish legitimate and authoritative uses of legal tools, but collectively they were designed to bolster accountability, predict- predictability,
0: and the, principle of rule, and the principle of rule of law. Okay, cool. The key word I would use is predictability. It is The point we made before is that the schools of law are schools of interpretation and they were formed to have consistency in answers. And so just taking a step back, reviewing a little bit of something we might've covered before, is that, all right, in the academic study of religion, we have this idea of a fundamentalist. And in common culture, we speak of fundamentalists as someone who's strict, radical, et cetera, et cetera. In the academic study of religion, we use this term to speak of someone who just skips the whole tradition and decides the verses of the primary source mean whatever they want them to mean, okay. So I open up the Quran, this ayah means, okay, kill them wherever you find them. That means that's what we have to do. Or the, the Quran is a text of peace, why? Because that's clear to me, it's not clear to you. And so, so that's a common approach that many people take. But what is what is the considered to be the more proper approach is you look at the whole history of interpretation. Okay. Now, in the history of interpretation of the Quran and the Sunnah, what what is forming that it's basically a person is suggesting here's what these things mean because of xyz hadith someone else is coming along and saying no i disagree on on matter number two or i agree with you on everything else someone else comes along and says you guys are both wrong in matter number three it's just this whole ongoing discussion and debate but what starts happening is that there's places where they all agree they might be explicit They might be implicit. The explicit stuff is easy to figure out, obviously. Like they all agree there's no God but God and Muhammad's a messenger of God, peace be upon him. Uh, But then the challenge to figure out what are the implicit things that they all agree upon. And then these schools form, whether it's a school of law or a school of theology or a school of something else, where you're looking for consistency and interpretation. So the Hanafi school has its methods uh, the Maliki school has its methods, and basically they have their methods to be consistent in their answers. So if you have 10 Hanafi judges, 10 Hanafi jurists, their answers are more or less going to be the same to, to a particular question. And then if you have 10 Maliki jurists, their answers are going to be more or less the same. The goal here is predictability, right? And usually the predictability is not going to be in a final answer. It's going to be in a range of answers. So I'll give you I'll give you a simple example from today. Uh, I had a student who asked if it's okay for him to, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Is it okay for him to sleep in silk sheets? Yeah. yeah. Like some of your expressions, like it's like half of your jaws just opened up a little bit. Okay. And he's saying this is something he's wanted to do his whole life. I'm like, All right, man. At first I wouldn't answer him. Actually, I think he asked me yesterday and, and he goes, do you know the answer? I go, no. And then he asked me today if I found out, I go, no. Then I said, all right, fine, since you're asking me, let me go talk to some people. And so then I talked to a teacher who said that, yeah, in the Hanafi school, Abu Hanifa is of the opinion that, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you can't wear silk as a shirt, but there's nothing wrong with it. Yet two of his students are of the opinion that it's makruh, it's disliked. So then I told the kid and he was like the happiest man in the world and uh, just afraid of what he's gonna ask me next. Anyway, yeah, others. Was... Is satin and silk the same thing? Say it again. Oh, satin and silk. No, those are two different things. Yeah. Okay. Was... So you wear was... satin. Sure, but he he wanted silk sheets. Okay. Yeah.
2: What's the difference? I won't get oh, it.
0: yeah, we don't get it to here. So
2: <laughs> then it goes
0: further. He's like, I'm not gonna tell my parents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honey, would you say something?
3: I was just gonna say, sink, uh, silk pillowcases are apparently good for your hair.
0: So, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I wish someone told me that a long time ago. Anyway, <laughs> so 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 the point is, and in fact, considering how much this guy takes care of his hair, that's probably part of it. Okay. And uh, yeah, uh, for his, and he's probably gonna listen to this, so he's not gonna mind me making fun of him. His wife, when they were getting married for their meher, she wanted a cat, and I suggested that he should get a tiger or a panther or something, but thankfully, they just get settled with cash. Anyway, that's beside the point. So, but the point is what? It's to get consistency of answers. And and then uh, I'm going to, going back to this previous screen to give you some, some terms that are really good to know. Uh, the first one, of course, is dias, which we always already spoke about as analogies. And then is another big one that, uh, literally, the idea of taqlid is that you are being led. Uh, people often associate it with blind faith. But taqlid in the context of Islamic law is that you are being led by precedence. This is a good term to know. So like, imagine like level one of good terms. Another good term that's like sort of a level one good term is Ijtihad which is probably a term that you've heard of. It's a variant on the word jihad, which is interesting. Ijtihad grammatically means to do jihad really hard. And in the context of Islamic law, or literally ijtihad in terms of Islamic traditional sciences, literally speaks of ijtihad as scholarship. Jihad is fighting in the battlefield. Jihad really hard is scholarship. And so, so here is the deliberation process for finding answers. So well, let's see if there's any level one terms. Uh, another level one term is just the term qadi which is uh, referring to the, the, the judge, in contrast to the mufti, which is more of the jurist. Level two terms would include orf and ada. So orf is commonly translated as normative or customary practices. How do they do things in your particular culture? Ada is essentially just like an Urdu adat. Same thing. And then these other terms are sort of uh, level three terms. Let me see if there's anything else. Yeah, we're going to be re- revisiting these. Okay, cool. All right, thanks for that. Hussein, uh, who wants to read the next paragraph? Iman, you want to read or are you writing your paper? Hopefully you're writing your paper.
4: Um, well. Okay, why don't you read? Yeah. Being the ultimate sources of legitimacy, the formal sources of law do not play solely a symbolic role in Islamic jurisprudence. Many legal debates and determinations originated or were derived directly from the textual narrative of the Quran and Sunnah. Nevertheless, it would be erroneous to assume, as many fundamentalists tend to, that Islamic law is a literalist explication or enunciation of the text of the Quran and Sunnah.
0: Okay, this is a really, really important point because it's not just fundamentalists who believe this. This is the common belief by and large that we often say that the Quran is for all time and place. That is correct, but not in the way people think. And one proof that it is not automatically for all time and place is that it comes in a particular language, right? It comes in Arabic and it comes in a particular dialect of Arabic, which now we regard as modern standard or formal formal Arabic. Meaning you need to translate it just to be able to understand it if you are not an Arab especially if you're not an Arab who who understands the text of the Quran. And likewise, the content of the Quran, one of the first questions for any passage is does this apply for everybody or does this apply specifically to the generation of the Prophet, peace be upon him? Likewise for the Hadith as well. And so the common belief in our community is all I need to do is make the Quran the constitution of my society and everything is solved. I mean, aside from just, you know, how simplistic that is, uh, as as in a, uh, a way to address society. It's it doesn't work because the Quran was revealed in a specific moment in history, but what it provides within the text are the tools through which you can easily make it universal. This is the fascinating thing about it. He's going to talk about it a little bit here. Um, That the text itself at one level, it's specifically for the generation of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but within it, it gives you the material for universal application. All right, uh, so uh, continue, Uh, Aman.
4: Only very limited portions of the Quran can be said to contain specific positive legal commandments or prohibitions. Okay, Okay. so,
0: and I think we've discussed this before. So roughly what percentage of the Quran actually gives commands or prohibitions or how many ayahs? Out of 6,000 some IOs, what percentage are actual instructions?
2: I think the number was like 400 is,
0: Give or take. You know, 250 to, to 500, uh, 250 to 350, uh, you know, there's going to be some variance in terms of what people consider to be an actual command. Uh, and so we're saying out of 6,000 some, which means less than 10% and closer to 5% are actual instructions, meaning... 90% of the Quran, more than 90% of the Quran, is not instructions. So now, what is the Quran giving us? If most of it is not instructions, meaning commonly the notion in our community is that the Quran gives you all your instructions on how to live your life and such, and it's a rule book. But I'm saying that it is not. It contains rules. What is it? It's giving you a depiction of how does reality operate. That... When we speak of sacred texts, they're often in the same universe as we would think of fantasy or sci-fi. They're saying, here's how reality operates. And then some texts become prescriptive like the Quran does saying, because here's how reality operates, here's how to navigate through that reality. And so what are the big aspects of how does reality operate? There's a creator who has put us in this world for a period of time, and he's gonna hold us to account and then put us in a place for eternity after that, depending upon the accounting, right? That's the big element of, of reality. And then he gives us help by these communications through prophets and messengers, peace be upon them. And then it's up to me whether or not I accept it or not. So it's saying, here's how reality operates. And an element of that is prescriptions on navigating reality. Okay, uh, continue.
4: Much of the Quranic discourse, however, does not have compelling normative connotations that were extensively explored and debated in the classical juristic tradition. Muslim scholars developed an extensive literature on Quranic exegesis. exegesis yeah, almost there, almost there. You almost got it.
0: Exegesis? Excellent, mashallah.
4: Quranic exegesis and legal... Go for it, man. yeah. Hermeneutics.
0: Oh, yeah, close enough. I mean, it's an academic word. Who, who really cares how you pronounce it? But yeah, hermeneutics. Okay, keep going. Hermeneutics.
4: As well as a body of work known as Hikam quran exploring the ethical and legal implications of the Quranic discourse.
0: Okay. So to put that in a simple language, basically, we have this whole giant tafsir tradition. And within the tafsir tradition, we have the legal tafsirs. And the core of them is what we call the ahkam of the Qur'an. And those are those passages where the Qur'an is giving judgment, hukum being the singular. Okay, continue.
4: Moreover, there is a classical tradition of disputations and debates on what is known as the occasions of revelation, asbab al-nuzul, which deal with the context or circumstances that surrounded the revelation of the particular Qur'anic verses or chapters, and on the critical issue of abrogation, nice. or which Quranic prescriptions and commandments, if any, were nullified or voided during the time of the prophet.
0: Okay, so again, putting in a simple language, Asbab nuzul is the collection of hadith that are giving us the backstory behind each ayah. And we would like to think that we have the backstory behind every ayah. No, we don't. Uh, if you were to take a whole volume of Baba Nuzul, it's not that much bigger than the Quran itself okay. and and sometimes it contradicts itself and, and so for example uh, easy question that is actually a trick question easy question uh, who can tell us what are the first uh, verses, first ayahs that the prophet peace be upon him received anyway, right first five ayahs of Surah Al-A'laq 96 Surah. That is the majority opinion. right? That's what we teach throughout all of Sunday school and everything. That's actually a majority opinion. What are other opinions? The first ayahs are, surah, are ayahs from Surah Al-Muddafir, Surah Al-Muzammir, Surah Al-Fatiha. So there's other narrations that hint that these might be the, uh, the first revelations that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received. And so then what do we think about what we're saying? We're saying that it's majority opinion that the Prophet went to the cave and then received the visit from Jibril, salam, and had the whole event with the It's majority opinion. Meaning, you know, there is, the ayahs are in the Quran, but that story itself is not in the Quran. And so, so we have all kinds of source material. So he's saying one another collection, one collection is the Ahkam. another collection is Asbab As- As- and Nuzul. And and so it's so he even uses term whoops. Nice. Okay, good. Okay. So so uh, it is something that is disputed. Uh, but it does still give us a hint of what was going on at the time. So the narrative that we always teach about the biography of the prophet peace be upon him, there's the cave and then he's preaching publicly and then this, and then they get slandered and they get tortured and then they go to Abyssinia and then they they have the people from Medina and there's the hijra and so forth. That's sort of accepted as a majority opinion narrative. Might be completely wrong in terms of actual history. Majority narrative, why? Because it follows and makes sense. But it's not a source of scholarship. So it's not as much of a concern about being authentic. What is the concern about being authentic? If there's something I'm going to be held to account for before Allah. And those would be things like the ahkam, And then that also includes the issues of abrogation. And so abrogation is basically here's an ayah, and then you have another ayah that overrides it. We'll probably spend some time on this because some of it you're already familiar with, like the ayahs on alcohol. Some of it you may not be familiar with, like the Aya's on stoning. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Who'd like to read next? Honey, you want to read next?
1: Wait, quick question regarding yeah. the notification um, of Quranic ayah. So you're saying that's only like when another ayah overrules another not, that one ayah just doesn't
0: apply to us or something because nullification is a pretty strong word right yeah that's exactly what i'm saying i'm saying so okay so i'll give you uh let's talk about that now so brace yourselves you're gonna get your you're gonna have your iman vitamins ready so so (laughs) one type of abrogation is where you have the ayah and you still recite the ayah as part of the quran but another ayah that is in the Quran overtakes it. So the way this is spoken of is that the recitation is still there. But the ruling of it is no longer there. Yeah.
2: Hold up. Hold
0: up. Yeah.
2: I was always told nothing in the Quran contradicts itself
0: at all. Yeah, but I didn't say that. I didn't, I, no one's disagreeing with that. Um, how are you hearing that? You said... He used the word "rules," which made him think contradict Which are oh, okay. You're probably you're probably. Uh, I'm going to venture a guess to say you were probably uh, multitasking. I was talking about contradiction in terms of the backstory of of the is the Islamic. Okay. Story. No,
2: no, I wasn't multitasking. I'm just tired.
0: Yeah, I'm teasing. I'm teasing, obviously. Okay.
1: Why are you always picking on me, Zephyr?
0: Okay, so let me uh, let me pull up uh, some passages of the Quran to really make this point alright you yeah. All right. Y'all see the <clears throat> the Quran on my screen? Yeah. Okay. So if we go, for example, okay, so, so we said, what is the first type of abrogation is that the recitation is preserved, but the law, the, the injunction, the commander, the prohibition as is no longer there that it's been overrided, overridden, overridden, overrode by another ayah that is that is um, recited. Okay. And so one simple example of that is alcohol, right? Because that's the one we always teach. What was the first instruction on alcohol? Anybody know? You don't have to remember where it is, but just basically roughly what does the ayah say? The first instruction on alcohol, and this is in Surah 2, Surah Baqarah, is that there is benefit in Khamar and in Mesir, which is often translated as gambling, but the sin outweighs the benefit. Okay. So it's not saying don't do it, okay. but it's saying there's benefit there, but there's also sin there too. Okay. And then the second ayah that comes later, this is in Surah, Nisa, Surah 4, is don't come drunk to prayer. So we could say that the first ayah, I mean, it didn't really, nothing's contradicted, but it was overridden. Because the first ayah doesn't tell you not to do it. The second ayah is now saying, okay, make sure your, your buzz is gone by the time you're praying. It's not telling you to stop drinking. It's telling you you're going to have to stop drinking like an hour before prayer time. Okay. And then what's the third ayah? That alcohol is the filth of shaitan. Meaning, don't drink it at all. Don't even come near it. Okay. So so it isn't contradicting the second ayah. Okay, the second ayah is don't come drunk to prayer, but it is overriding it in the sense that the second ayah is only saying don't come drunk to prayer. The third ayah is now saying don't drink at all. Okay. So that's a common example. Those first two ayahs are still in the Quran. Okay. I'll give you a different example of the same thing. Uh, As we we always we often talk about the alcohol example. And let me this is the long way. So let's do this the short way, like okay, a normal human being. Right around I one eighty three. Yeah. So I one eighty three. Okay. Oh, you believe fasting is prescribed for you as was prescribed for those before you, so that you may get taqwa. Okay. So, first instruction on in fasting is not telling us anything about when and how to fast. It's just saying you should fast. Okay. Then we get an ayah, even though in the context of the surah, they're one right after the other, that says fast a certain number of days. So what did the prophet, peace be upon him, start prescribing the companions to do? Fast the middle days of every single month. That was their practice. But if you're on ill or on a journey, then fast an equal number of other days. Ramadan's not part of the text. For those who can only fast with extreme difficulty, compensation can be made. For every day you're not fasting. Whoever volunteers give more, it's better for them. Fasting is better for you if you only knew. right? So then exceptions are also given. But based on this ayah, the Muslims were fasting the 13th, 14th, and 15th of each lunar month. Those are called the white days because the moon was full. But then, shortly after that, Ramadan is the month in which the Quran was revealed as a guide, and so forth and so on. And then, whoever is present, let them fast. Which means then what? The prescription for fasting the middle days now just became an option. Nothing. And this became the mandatory practice. See what happened? That first they were supposed to fast in just the middle number of days, the middle days, and then that was changed to fast Ramadan.
1: Although this is recited together, was it not revealed at once? Correct. So I'm guessing that first with the that's like I was at early on, and then these Shahru Ramadan are like later on. Yes, exactly.
0: Now, what is the difference in time here? It's probably less than two years. Because uh, it's generally believed that this is all revealed uh, shortly after Prophet peace one arrives in Mecca, in Medina after the Hijra, And then the fasting of Ramadan happens shortly after that too. So chances are they're probably fasting the middle days probably for about a year. And then they're given the injunction for fasting in Ramadan. So again, what do we see here? That these ayahs are still recited, but they've been abrogated in this case by the one that's literally right after it, okay? That's one type of abrogation. That's the easiest one to deal with. So. Second type of abrogation, okay, this is where you got your, you're got gonna get your Iman vitamins ready. Before we, before we continue, yeah.
1: quick question, someone. So for the first type of, regarding the alcohol, I think I've heard the wisdom behind that is sometimes to, it was to make it easier for the Sahabas to, you know, like come to Islam, you know, in a way so you don't just have to give up alcohol completely, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious because I mean I haven't I hadn't studied abrogations this until this point. I'm trying to see maybe is it could you maybe share if you know the wisdom behind the optional fast, I mean the mandatory fast of the uh, middle of the months and now in the long cause it's still this similar amount of days, if that makes sense. You know, so it's just like
0: sure. yeah, I would suggest uh abrogation fundamentally is the process of helping people grow so if we add to this the hadith of aisha where she says if the first instruction if the first command that came down was don't drink and don't commit zina,' nobody would become muslim right and so this is so this is a little bit outside of the realm of islamic law this is more in you know what is more like my work in terms of chaplaincy which in the history of our tradition would be more in the realm of the Sufis and such which is basically how do you get someone to grow in their faith you know I'll give you a simple example that I often ask suppose you have someone who converts to Islam and tomorrow is Ramadan they just converted to Islam today tomorrow is Ramadan are you going to tell them to fast uh, the whole of Ramadan what do you all think yeah, you're all shaking your heads now. Why, any of you? Not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, maybe
2: they want to, or maybe they can. But the point is that it's you're supposed to ease them into anything, and anything in life, you're supposed to ease them into it. And even in indoctrination of in the military, they ease you into it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it, but they ease you into it. It's an ongoing process, way after training too. So mm-hmm. just a matter of or, uh, retention, or
0: yeah. retention
2: intention yeah
0: there you yeah. go yeah and your thoughts i mean that's i think essentially it
3: i think it depends on the personality of the person i know mm-hmm. people who have fasted the whole month and became muslim afterwards uh yeah. and it just kind of dived into it
0: yeah so. you do have especially you do have uh with converts. often there's zeal yeah you know the conversation i always have with converts is i'll tell them okay nobody ever listens to me but i'm still going to give you the same advice which is right now don't change anything in your life right and nobody ever listens. And then I tell them, okay, you're gonna go on this zeal for like six months, eight months, and then you're gonna crash and then come back to me. Yeah, and that's usually how it works. Yeah. I feel like I just convert after I'm a bond. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and the same thing would be uh, uh, the, the question, okay, are you so they've just become Muslim. Do they uh, do you make them change everything, drop everything that's haram, so forth and so on? And intuitively, yeah, aside from the fact that you have convert zeal. What is our goal? Our goal is lifelong practice. And so if you change something too quickly, you're probably going to bounce back, sometimes even worse. And here we're talking about changing the whole community. And we're not just talking about any community, right? These are people who are very, very, uh, what's the word? Like stubborn in their nature. These are not soft people. And, and so, so they're going through a process of transformation. So yeah, in a simple nutshell, I'm saying the point of abrogation, a point of abrogation or wisdom of it, is the transformation of a community? Uh, Idle, you're raising your hand.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to take us on a tangent. Feel free to stop me if you want to. But where? So where is the balance of not being too free, but also having that sense of control over them? Not control, but that sense of guide yeah. them. Because you don't want to. You don't want to be like, yeah, keep doing everything. It's fine. Yeah, totally.
0: You know, I'm it's a, guiding them wrong. So when I'm in those situations, which is you know, not to exaggerate literally on a daily basis. Like today, I had a student who her father has been unemployed and they have no health care. And so she is suffering from horrendous, debilitating panic attacks. And and she, they can't even afford her medication right now and she can't even go to the doctor the next appointment that she can get with a doctor is not until after after december so and she has these panic attacks uh, uh multiple times a day then her friend comes along and says well i've been given cbd specifically designed for panic attacks and then she tried it and it worked y'all know what tbd is right yeah 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 you all know okay so what would you tell her
2: what i tell her and what everybody would tell her
0: yeah what would you tell her so if you were in my shoes
2: if i was in your shoes uh to the gulags okay
0: uh
2: if i were you it would be most likely keep it up Know, know your boundaries. Know, know the stem and the root of why this is happening and why you're taking this. Mm-hmm. Forget the foundation of what, the foundation of the meaning of your action.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, good. You say what'd you say?
1: Similar, um, you know, keep temporary because, I mean, Islam is a religion that's not meant to be a burden on anyone. So if, if like, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to take it, just because really it's wrong, make sure you're putting yourself at risk from a health perspective, it doesn't make sense, you know, I mean, think you're allowed to eat pork, if there's no food all around, if there's no excuse, so mm-hmm. based on that analogy, um, I think okay. Um, it you should see a doctor in January when you can and when you can afford to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Don't become reliant on this. So.
2: Yeah, and let me add on to that. Is yeah. that you're not allowed to eat pork, but... Yeah. If you're in a desert stuck or wherever you're stuck, and the only out available to is pork, you're not. It is you're not going to be punished for eating pork. And I think
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yep. so honey, What comes uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear? Yes.
3: Yeah. Okay. I. So, what CBD is not allowed? <laughs> is it? What, I C B D
0: So, so she's asking me about all that. Okay, is it haram? Is it not? Yeah. Um, so just based on the story as is, as it is, what would you tell her?
3: I don't even understand why it would not be allowed okay. it's for a medicinal reason So,
0: okay.
3: I mean, I, I don't know. Is there like a clear ruling that it's head on? I does not seem different from marijuana. Or, so sorry. that's,
0: that's part of the issue that I didn't even bother getting into it with her. Yeah. I said, all right, if it's working for you for now, just do what you got to do. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even get into the discussion about weed versus CBD and all that stuff.
3: Now, what if it was, she was saying this is alcohol and it numbs my pain. What would you tell her then?
0: Uh, There. And so, so part of my discussion with her is me. I already know her. I've had her as a student for for a year and a half. So I also know that she's straightforward about all these things. And if she's saying alcohol, I would probably say you can probably find something else. Okay.
3: So it's really the, the point, the, the fact that it's it, within the gray area, that's why you can say, yes, it's okay. But if well, it was something that was out of the gray, it was black and white, then you would, even if it's like a person in need, you would say no.
0: I mean, depending again on the case, right? And so so there's a very famous case of, of this famous Islamic scholar who, he had all these these students that were these Mongol warriors, okay? and he wouldn't tell them to stop drinking. So booze is haram. He wouldn't tell them to stop drinking. And people noticed this, and they would say to him, okay, what are you doing? Okay. You're literally letting these people drink. They're getting all drunk every night, and then they go to sleep. And he said, yeah, that's exactly why I let them drink. Because if they were awake, what would they do? They'd be raping and pillaging. And so even for something like alcohol, I'd be looking at the content. It's already established it's haram, but what is the best instruction for this person at this moment?
3: But, okay, again, why is instruction, like wouldn't, as as an instructor, isn't your job to give the instruction that Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordained and then it's up to the person to do whatever they want to do?
0: So, but they they already know it's haram.
3: Okay, they knew, so the Mongolians knew. Yeah. The Mongol, okay. Yeah. He was just telling
0: them that it's okay. So essentially he's having them focus on other things with the intention that at some point they're going to get to this. I mean, the example, I don't know if I've shared this all with you, uh, a student of mine who, who in fact, I was just uh, meeting with him on Zoom um, yesterday, on Saturday, but um, uh, I told you all about the story about the Hindu convert. Have I told you his, the story? I always tell the story. Okay, so uh converts uh, he's dating Pakistani girl and and you know whatever haram is is involved in, in their practices he gets interested in islam she sends him to me and then uh uh you know we're spending time we're studying together this and that and he's getting more and more interested in islam chances are i'm probably the first desi uncle that you know has been nice to him in his whole life that's probably the real reason why he's getting into islam Allah knows best and reaches the point where he is ready to take the shahada, yeah and, and and so like the week before or so he's asking me and this is like a february of whatever that year was at end of february he's like okay do i have to quit drinking and i said right now focus on your relationship with god and then he says are you saying it's okay for me to drink i said i didn't say that I so said, focus on your relationship with God. And then I gave him the whole spiel about, you know, people who will make radical changes and then bounce back. Yeah. And he says, because uh, St. Patrick's Day is coming up and I was hoping to have some fun. And, brace yourself, all the guys that I get hammered drunk with or all the guys that got hammered drunk with last Saturday are the guys in the front row of Juma. Yeah, Adil, this is like Abdul's favorite story of his whole life now. So... So I started laughing. I said, okay, be happy that they're coming to Juma at least, right? And, and so what was the message that I'm giving to him is, okay, don't start making radical changes in your life. So in any case, he stopped drinking immediately. And then he started yelling at all of it, all these Muslim friends, what kind of Muslim are you? You're drinking and blah, 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 blah. And one by one, they started coming you know, to and I'm joking. I'm laughing, saying things that I couldn't accomplish with you guys in three years. He accomplished literally like three days. But the point is that uh, I could have said to him, no, you have to stop drinking. Then where do I draw the line? Then uh, why not stop there? Why not include everything else haram that he's doing? And so again, the goal is long-term practice. It doesn't unharam something, but the determination may be that at this moment in your life, this is not what you need to focus on. You need to focus on something else. And so I always give the example, you have three different people, three different students who are coming to my office with alcohol issues, one person, I might tell the person, okay, you should stop drinking, because I believe that's what will work with them. Another person, I might tell them, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Another person, I might tell the third person, you got to change your friends, because those those are the people that are are leading you down this path. And so, so the goal is always to get to full practice but the steps there will vary from person to person. We'll
1: I, think we, um, I think the examples we shared, we kind of said that you know, it's usually okay to, you know, or for that growth, but I think just a side is that intention matters to the person. So that gray area that you're, that you're saying that, you know, it's, a reason it's in the gray area. If the person's intention is just to keep moving, like, you know, pushing that gray area, that's, based on what I understand, not okay either,
0: you know? So um, just a second point. Yeah, this is also a a very important, you know, uh, clarification. The goal (laughs) is, in another way to say the same thing, the goal is not stagnancy. The goal is continuous growth. And and also, I mean, if a student is coming to me, you know, and for the first meeting says, all right, I want to improve as a Muslim, before we even get into the discussion, okay, what are the wrong things, right things that you do? Uh, the first thing I focus on is what is the condition of your prayers before everything else. So they might be doing a, a thousand different haram things. If I don't know them to be destructive, you know, then we won't get into them until later on. But yeah, and and there are narrations about the values of these different things. So for example, this is not giving a justification for zina that committing zina is a huge a huge crime, right? skipping prayers is a bigger crime that's how big skipping prayers is uh, but if I say that to undergrads how are they going to interpret that well I'm already skipping prayers you know which is worse. right and so even that in terms of what you share it has to be done very carefully okay I uh, you raise your hand yeah um,
2: I'll try to explain this the best I can but I don't I'm not sure if I can so let's say you are the source of somebody's growth in Islam. But say you, you as a source, are already at a, a pretty high level of deen and, and imam. But they are not yet so. But you are the source of the imam. And say you have some sort of relationship with them. It's not exactly haram. Uh, and there's nothing, nothing there's, it's not haram. It's just a relationship between, let's say, friends and whatnot. But say the other person becomes reliant on you as a source and they have their own lifestyle before, you know, they converted. They have the practices, uh, Western practices. You know what I'm getting at is like all the dating and all that stuff.
0: Dating. Yeah. Huh?
2: So, so let's say, since you had that growth, their growth, and they want to pursuing this and these things that, that are not allowed and then you don't already do, but they do because they're used to it. Is it right to them, cut them off or is, should you, what should you do in that case?
0: So, so there are students that I've had over the years where uh, it, it seems to me that I've become more of an enabler than in a benefit. And depending upon what the student is capable of hearing, I'll be very blunt. Right, you already know me in terms of conversations with you that I'm very frank, right? He's like,
4: why are you always picking on me?
0: Anyway, so, but the point is that- I
4: have never
2: said that.
0: <laughs> the record he has not yet said that. So no, but the point is that, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you one example of a student who would call me up once a month, long hour long phone call, and about this is what's going on in his life, this is what he's struggling with. And I'd give him, okay, here's, here's an exercise to work on. Calls me up a month later, gives me almost the exact same story and I give him the exact same assignment and each time I give him the assignment he's like oh yeah that makes complete sense I never thought about that even though I literally said it to him the month before and this went on for a year Okay. and then the next year of getting the same phone calls I started saying to him look man I've been giving you the same assignment and every single time you act like you've never heard it before you got to implement your assignment and so then for the next year it was this repeated calls but now the his response would change to oh yeah i should implement what you're telling me okay so first it was all oh, this assignment is profound now i need to do it and then he just reached the point where i said man i can't help you okay jump forward a couple years he's going to a therapist and then he calls me up and he says okay my therapist dropped me i go why he said because you know to this person he said you've been visiting me for three years and you'd never do anything i tell you to do okay. and it's the same meeting every single time and he said yeah that's exactly what brother omar said and then he called me up so I me the same thing and he started calling me up again and i stopped answering so and so uh each teacher mentor type person has to make an objective assessment of okay what benefit can i bring to this person the iman i am not the source of their iman keep that point in mind that's a law right uh as uh, but i mean that's uh it's simple but important technicality but the point is that uh you have to be uh objectively honest in terms of what can you provide and then are you actually providing are you enabling and if you're enabling you got to try to refer them to somebody else they may or not be able to hear it in this case this person i had to literally just stop answering his calls and, and so these are assessments that you're always doing throughout the whole process. Okay. Uh, we have we more. I'm sorry. We need to set up a meeting to discuss this further. You know, this is not the first time you and know, I have talked about setting up a meeting, you know. You know what I'm saying? Okay, anyway. So uh, we have more abrogations. You, you ready for the other ones you want to wait till next week? That's good. <laughs> okay. So one abrogation is the AYA- Is continued to be recited but the hukum is gone second variation is that the ayah is no longer recited think about what that means it means it's no longer part of the quran but the hukum the ruling is still there so give yourself a moment to process this first one still recited hukum gone Second one, no longer recited. Hukum is still there. And the common textbook madrasa example of this is the punishment of zina of someone who's married. In the Quran, what is the punishment for zina? Death.
2: Yes. Sorry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's getting whipped. Okay.
2: Wait, I thought it was thrown to
1: death.
0: Not in the Quran. It used to be in the Quran. Think about what I'm saying. Yet in, so it was revealed to the prophet, peace be upon him, as an ayah. And in the lifetime of the prophet, peace be upon him, it was removed as an ayah. Try to comprehend that because you've probably never been taught this. And the ruling the prophet preserved. Which is that Okay, if you, if you commit zina, if they're married, they get stoned to death. So think about that. It's not in the Quran, but it used to be. This is, okay. in mind, this is not dinner time conversation to have with your family and your friends. Hey, here's what you learned from the zuffer, right? And it takes some time to really process what we're doing here. Say
1: Just to clarify, if you don't mind. So the is this abrogation is, the ruling is preserved, the ayah is not there anymore. Uh, so the Quran current ruling out of the eyes we recite is that for Zina the person gets whipped, but the ruling is actually you get stoned, which is actually not present in the Quran, is that correct?
0: So if you're single, you get whipped, just like what the Quran says. Okay. If you're married, you get stoned. Okay. How do we how do we that stone this? part is not in the Quran? The stone part, the stone part or part about being married or single is not in the Quran.
2: So I guess it comes out of a societal need and the interpretation of the values of what they deem to be important. Yeah, that's what I'm guessing. Like it's a completely societal. Then, yeah. yeah. uh, honey, I, I...
1: sorry. Oh,
0: honey, and then it was yeah. Aiden. Uh,
3: I still don't even understand. Um, so you're married and you commit adultery, not with the same person, and then get married, but. While you're married, you commit adultery with another person, right? Okay. Yeah, I
0: mean, if it's with your spouse, it's not adultery, you
3: know. Right, no, but I'm saying, like, if it's you commit, yeah. but then you get married, those people are Yeah.
0: yeah. So, so, so.
3: No, I was thinking, could that be a reason to like preserve the family? But no, I, I don't know why that would be the case. And yeah, please elaborate.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, so basically, um, <clears throat> some of it is this is just literally how, you know, history at the time of the prophet played out. Meaning when I'm being taught this, the teacher is literally reciting the ayah. And as far as I can tell, it sounds like an ayah, you know. But uh, uh, where is the source material that contains this? This is in the Hadith literature. And there's even a narration from Umar where he says, I'm afraid because this is no longer recited as part of the Quran, people are going to forget this. But again, what is the overall point we're making? that within the period of the prophet receiving the Quran, we're often taught, here's Jibril alayhi reciting to the prophet, peace upon him, it's all perfect, it gets organized and it's perfect, right? And I'm giving it a little bit of a modification to it, saying Jibril alayhi is giving him an ayah, giving him a set of ayahs, they're implementing in whatever way, most of it is focused on thinking and such. And there's some times where Jibril alayhi is saying, this is no longer part of the Quran. What growth needs to happen in your community, is done and sometimes he's giving other ayahs that say, okay, these override these other ones, but you're still going to recite these other ones. So, ready for more? Yeah, oh, wait, wait,
1: okay, so the I guess you answered, but yeah, that's not recited anymore, that is still preserved in the hadith. That is a source material of, of that, correct? Yeah. yeah, okay, and how many instances of these are there? Very few. Okay. You know, and the strength you
0: know, of those a you know, is like, like it's. Yeah, it's all been evaluated and all that stuff. And we're just like, okay. Yeah. Wait, question two. Oh, uh, uh, I, okay, Idle and Honey. Yeah. Me. Yeah. I think I cut you up before. Yeah. Sorry.
2: Wait, who's going next?
0: Okay, go for Idle. Yeah.
2: So, are you saying? Then, are you saying we should stone people to death?
0: whether we should that do do that right now that's an intu- issue of context just like our discussion about uh, of, uh, about you know someone who just became Muslim and all that stuff that's the application is a separate issue but in terms of the concept <laughs> you get the concept right the concept Definitely need to have a
1: talk with Ado afterwards yeah
0: <laughs> the concept is that there are times where the prophet peace receives an ayah that is temporarily part of the Quran honey you were saying something <laughs>
3: What was the purpose of that? Why, I mean, what was the wisdom behind it?
0: I mean, the overall wisdom seems to be part of it is to is that the growth of that particular community is unique compared to everybody else's growth, yeah. and and that because that's a matter of of punishment. Uh, it could be that you know the source material for 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 implementation implementation of crime and punishment. Is this mixture of Quran Hadith anyway? It could be something like that, you know. But ultimately, the answer is this is how God made it play out, you know.
3: And then the other thing you said about uh, it just being majority opinion that the whole cave of Hira thing happened and Ekrabi the first word for yeah, holy
0: shattering all of your 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 lifetime of Sunday school in in this hour, like Islamic
1: school memorizing Quran. I'm like, where have I been? Why was this never taught to me?
3: Right, aren't you like a half as uh, what's it?
1: Yeah, uh, hey, <laughs> I'm really really sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I don't live in a bubble of, like Madrasa either. Like I'm like I think I do, but I'm still like.
3: I want you to go ask. Uh, what was his name? Ghazali. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm
1: <laughs> other, I mean, I don't stay in touch with him that much, but like I could and. I, I'll let you ask your other question. Yeah, so we, you can elaborate yeah. on that too. Is, is it like when you say majority? Is it like 99 nine, yeah. like? percent of like one and one
3: so that my question was more so answer or and then so then that just puts everything into what really happened and what really didn't happen um it just puts everything into doubt and it's okay but
1: what, what does it change Maybe that story still happened though, right? It's just the timing of it because you're saying iqra is not the first word, but when he did get it, it was so, still in the right?
0: Not. So, so, a way to think about it is okay, let's take a step back. Hadith literature. Fine, <laughs> so, so, we have the Quran, right? And we have the Hadith. A way to categorize these is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, is being taught all of this. Okay? And then we categorize the Quran as recited revelation. Wahi matlu, recited revelation, matlu tilawat. Okay, and then we have non recited revelation, and that is essentially the sunnah and what is captured in the hadith. Okay, non recited revelation. Okay? and so what's the difference between sunnah and hadith? I mean, there's different uses of sunnah, but here when we're talking about sunnah. Uh of hadith we're talking about those things that the prophet repeatedly did yeah. that if he did something repeatedly uh, there's probably some purpose behind it especially if he's telling us to do it yeah. then it becomes a level of obligation but the hadith is going to have everything right and what does the hadith uh, uh, capture anything that the prophet peace <laughs> upon him said anything he did or anything he witnessed seeming to give approval said is easy to understand okay, we heard him say it did it's understand we saw we saw him, uh, we saw him do it the third category would be all those moments where he's present but he doesn't say or do anything about it so he doesn't say it's wrong so we're assuming he's giving approval secondarily would be anything about the companions as well and often those are called afar okay, the official term but they're be in the hadith literature as well Now, the concern, of course, is the authenticity of all of this. With the Quran, it's a bit easier because people are always reciting it, right? With the Hadith, this is the whole sciences of Hadith, figuring out how to authenticate narrations. And there's concern about authenticating everything, but the highest level of concern would be those things that we're going to be held to account for, like on the Day of Judgment. So where the prophet is saying do this, don't do that, yeah. then we need to know if he actually said it. So there'd be much more scrutiny on those things. Okay. Not as much scrutiny on what are called hadith putsi. What's a hadith putsi? Okay. It's uh, you know like a
1: times I also like there's a communication, right?
0: So yeah, the prophet is saying peace to <inaudible> another, Allah says Allah such and such. Yeah. And so if it sounds like a a wisdom, then it was usually accepted as is. There wasn't as much concern because those narrations, they're not saying, Allah says you have to do this. And then historical narrations, there was not as much concern because I'm not held to account of what I do or don't know of the history. Right? I'm held to account for what I'm supposed to do. Go for it, honey. Give it a second. It's uh,
3: One, okay. Yeah. Um, no, but then I'm thinking of the story for Lokma. Uh, sorry, not Lokma. Um, islam right? And the whole the, the alternative reading of it that people are bringing up recently. Um, is there actually uh, merit to that as well?
0: Uh, I mean, let's we'll get into that also, because,
3: right? Because I know you're just saying that only the Ekhma, the the, the hukum, right, is what's important. But like, I think stories are important because if you mm-hmm. If you start questioning it, then I don't know. To me, like everything becomes shaky.
0: Okay, so so then it comes down to what do we take as proofs? Historical examples are not proofs or a So so, for example, uh, you know, if we take something from the story of Moses, peace be upon him, that is not evidence for how to implement a law of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Good thing. And and so so the Quran uh, will have its material, the Hadith will have its material, and everything, every narration is scrutinized. But imagine, you know, these narrations that are historical might have been scrutinized by ten people. These narrations that are Hadith, could see might have been scrutinized by about ten people. But these are narrations where the Prophet is saying to do X, Y, Z are scrutinized by a hundred thousand people. And and so so. Is it fair to assume that the events of the biography of the profit piece upon happened? Yeah. And the majority opinion is that it happened in the order that we understand them to happen. But I'll give you a different example. If uh, uh, we're taught that the night journey, okay, that's that's not looked at as only just that it happened, but it's a matter of belief that you take it as a real event. But when we teach it, we teach it as happening in the latter part of Mecca. Okay, the Prophet he's he's called on everyone, they're rejecting him. He goes to Thaif and they reject him brutally. And then it's the worst day of his life, already in the year of sadness, because Khadija has died and Abu Talib has died, you know. Um Khadija. Um, um, and then he comes home and you know, he's going to sleep, right? In some narrations in front of the Kaaba. And even on his way home, he's making a prayer to Allah. Am I doing something wrong? Are you angry with me? Right? Really, really uh, powerful, moving event. Uh, but some are of the opinion that the night journey is one of the first things that happened to the prophet, peace be upon him. Think about how that changes the story. Whereas the way we commonly teach it, he's at the lowest of lows in doing his work. And then he has the experience of the night journey which is you know like almost like the highest of highs in some ways okay. almost like he's being told you are not being abandoned here okay. uh, but if you move that to almost the beginning of the whole story then it, it changes the whole dynamics of everything else I'm thing it is textbook belief that yes this absolutely happened and it was a physical event but when did it happen overwhelming majority opinion is happened the way we taught it teach it, which is near the end of the period of Makkah. Because shortly after the night journey, then there's the, the delegations from Yathrib that come to meet with him. And the story just starts improving. Yeah. I'm so-
2: The foundation
0: of my education, I hated. it. Okay, well, I mean, what's the story that, that we always teach that I cannot find anywhere? That there's a woman who used to throw garbage on the prophet, peace be upon him, every day. And one day she's not there yet. You all know the story. One day she's not there, and he goes to her house, and she's amazed that he came to her, and she becomes Muslim. Seems to be completely made up. That story can't even find anywhere. I suspect it's probably still true because of how widespread it is across the globe, and it's just verbally transmitted. But you're not going. Uh, I've never come across it in any hadith. Do you okay. find his story? you anybody this story? No, it's not a real story. Ask, ask us. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Look at how many people you're hurting tonight. <laughs> what are you talking about?
1: <laughs> you're sharing people's beliefs. Today, interesting conversation. So thank you
0: for enlightening us. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> so we won't do the i mean the we won't do too much more because already way over uh uh, an hour i usually try to go for for like 30 minutes but the point but to to help give your 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 soul some rest uh what we're shaking are things that are not foundational the foundational stuff of that has moved not even one bit yeah and we've also added we've made the story the whole experience of prophethood a bit more real world the other uh, abrogations are a lot easier to to, to 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 wrestle with and so don't worry about that I just remind me at the beginning of class next time but again core the, the stuff that is important none of that has shifted at all Could you essentially
1: share if the abrogations are like a source where all abrogations are listed especially for the second type where the excitation is not-
0: so uh, i don't know of an english language source that has the abrogations but a book that talks about all this stuff generally a nice book is by mufti taqi usmani and you can find it as a pdf online it's called approaching the the sciences of the Quran." and everything i'm telling you is literally just textbook madrasa information I mean, as you can gather, you know, what I'm teaching This is also not stuff that you would teach in Sunday school, right? Yeah. But again, the key point being that I'm basically shaking up things that are not central. You got to count for a second. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight.
3: Was this in the Martin Lings book? I can't remember. No. No. Why?
0: It's funny, there's a quote attributed to Martin Lings that he, he says that if you saw all the stuff that I left out of the biography,
3: you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, so like his source material um, is, uh, okay, so Ibn Ishaq essentially has the first um, sort of recognized-ish biography of the prophet, peace be upon him. That book doesn't exist. So there's Ibn Hisham who's sort of taken that book And so uh, that's translated to English by a person named Guillaume. And it's really, really fat. And you'd be surprised, for example, by how much violence there's actually in the book.
3: So you don't recommend Martin Lings as a good
0: source? Uh, Martin Lings is good. The hard part of Martin Lings, the writing is beautiful. But in terms of names, sometimes it gets overwhelming. And when I'm working with new students, I used to use Dharik Ramadan's book. Because that was a really nice initial uh, book. But, you know, because of... You know, what's been going on with him. Um, I've been hesitant to use that. So I went was back to Martin nectar? is
3: that was that it? I think I remember reading that too back in the day. So it
0: sealed it? nectar is is strong in the sense that it's only using authentic hadith to tell its story. Yeah. And so that's what's special about sealed nectar. I would still consider that to be like, I mean, it depends on where someone is. You know, if they're reading the biography for the first time, I start them with links. You know. Yeah. Second or third, then I'd get to Sealed Nectar because Sealed Nectar also gets analytical in interesting ways.
3: Yeah, remember reading it as an undergrad, yeah. Mm-hmm. Forever,
0: but yeah. Any last questions or thoughts? So so we'll finish the, the points about abrogation and address whatever questions you have you know, from today's discussion and we'll continue and all this. But I mean, what should be the net result as we go through our study of Islamic law? is that Islam should be moving from something pie in the sky to something very, very practical on the ground. And that's sort of what I'm trying to share in terms of all the stuff that we talked about today. Is trying to picture the real world development of of Islam. It'll probably, if you give it some time, it's actually gonna strengthen your faith, even though right now it, it might seem kind of awkward. It's because it becomes much more he face, he's showing.
1: He's just like smiling into the
0: camera. It's <laughs> like the having, you know, yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah uh, I'm, just, uh, I'm confused and tired. I don't like this.
0: I might need me to use that student CBD. And, you know, <laughs> you know. Okay. Uh, no other last questions, inshallah? All right. Allahumma <laughs> bihamdika, nashadu al-la ilaha anta. Nastaagfiruka, wa natubu ilaik. May I tell you all, inshallah, and we'll continue next time. سلام عليكم ليل خير